I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In about three months, nations will gather in Egypt to once again try to speed progress on reigning in climate change. And once again, a key question will be whether nation states, big and small, north and south, developed or not, trust each other to work together. The answer in the past has been a resounding no, with commitments not met, targets not reached, and goodwill in short supply. It happened again in Glasgow last year. The world's richest countries failed to put their money where their mouths are, leaving their poorer neighbours struggling to cope with the effects of a warming planet. We're bringing you the powerful words spoken by those who felt left behind in Glasgow. And we'll also hear from Indigenous delegates, some who believe international meetings like COP can work for them. But one leader stayed home to strike out on his own, cutting emissions and protecting his people's future. All here on this encore edition of What on Earth? Welcome, I'm Laura Lynch. The question then before us is no longer the nature of the challenge. The question is our capacity to meet it. For while the reality of climate change is not in doubt, I have to be honest, as the world watches us today, I think our ability to take collective action is in doubt right now, and it hangs in the balance. A newly minted U.S. President Barack Obama addressing delegates at climate talks in Copenhagen in 2009. Those talks were broadly seen as disappointing, messy, and lacking in binding agreements. But it is when developed countries first said they would deliver $100 billion to developing nations to tackle climate change. Forward six years, 2015. Canada and other wealthy nations again promised to commit the $100 billion by 2020 and continue to pay that each year through 2025. Just days ago, it was confirmed that promise has been broken. And with it, my next guest says, the trust of much of the global south. Salim al-Haq is the director of the International Centre for Climate Change and Development at the Independent University in Bangladesh, based in Dhaka. He advises 48 of the most vulnerable countries, including his own Bangladesh, and he's in Glasgow observing these climate talks for the 26th time in his career. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fine, thank you. You were in Copenhagen when that $100 billion figure was first set. Where did that number come from? I was indeed. I was there when actually it was announced by then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The number came out of thin air. It was not based on any kind of needs or requirements or calculations. It was just a nice round figure, which at that time sounded like a nice big round figure. It's still a round figure, but it's not a big round figure anymore. It's a small round figure now. So how much money is needed? Trillions, hundreds of trillions. 
but it isn't about the money anymore it's about the credibility of the people who promised the money those people have now shown that they do not have any credibility so that really is what is the crux of the 100 billion dollar non-payment the estimate from the international energy agency was 4 trillion dollars to get to net zero by 2050 does that strike you as sufficient well, on the energy side, that may well be sufficient, but on the impact side, it's not going to be sufficient at all. Because what we are seeing right now, by the way, is the cost of inaction. The people, more than 200 people who died in Germany, and the cost of the floods in the 50 billion euros. You're just having a cyclone in Canada right now. You had a heat wave a little while ago. The costs of those are in the many billions. And people have lost their homes and their whole cities have had to relocate as climate migrants. That is the actual cost. So the cost of inaction now is many, many, many orders of magnitude bigger than this totemic 100 billion. That's a 12-year-old figure. You just provided examples of of things that are happening in developed countries. You advise many nations in the global south. What do you expect their position will be in Glasgow, given the fact that these OECD nations have once again failed to meet their commitments? Well, the vulnerable developing countries, including mine, Bangladesh, this is not new news to them. This is happening for the last 10 years. It just hasn't registered on the, the global media. You haven't covered it, nor your leaders given it much attention. Now that they are suffering the impacts of climate change, we call it loss and damage from climate change, which we were hoping to prevent, but we have failed to prevent. And it's happening in rich countries. That's why I use those as examples, because they resonate with your audience. Telling them about Bangladesh does not resonate with them. We know that for a fact. Let's talk about the details of the money, Um, not just how much, but what it is for. It's been geared toward mitigation, which is trying to reduce the amount of of CO2 um, and global greenhouse gases in the air, adaptation, which is trying to do things to try to deal with the fact that climate change is already happening. Now, those are the two things that have been focused on. Some of it has been distributed, isn't it? Yes, so you're quite right. There are two ways of tackling climate change. One is by reducing emissions that cause the problem. We call that mitigation. And one is to deal with the impacts, which we call adaptation, to prepare yourself to make those impacts less harmful. The latter adaptation is relevant for the poorest, most vulnerable countries, and the former mitigation is important for the developing countries that are the big emitters like China, India, Brazil, South Africa. Uh, Tiny, vulnerable countries are not big carbon emitters, so for them mitigation isn't a priority, adaptation is. Now, from the developing countries side, when the $100 billion was offered, we had asked for half of it to go for mitigation and half of it to go for adaptation. The adaptation half should go to the most vulnerable countries. That was the demand. There was an understanding that that would be what happens. In practice, even though they didn't get to 100 billion, the latest figures for 2019 is they got to 79 billion, and that's their own estimate, not the estimate that has been challenged by independent observers. And 80% of that they gave for mitigation and only 20% of that they gave for adaptation. Now, there's a reason for that. The reason is that mitigation money generally goes to projects and programs for renewable energy, like solar or wind, uh, which generate an income. They sell energy and they can pay back loans. Adaptation cannot take loans. Poor people who are adapting to floods are not going to generate an income to help them cope with the flood. It's not only not 
likely that they can do it. It's also morally wrong to ask them. It has to be in the form of grants, which is why they don't like giving it. You brought up this third element now, and this is the, the idea of loss and damage. Tell me about what loss and damage is and what the plan is for it. So loss and damage is when we've run out of doing mitigation and adaptation effectively. And as it happens this year, 2021, is the year in which we cross that threshold. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report that was uh, published on the 9th of August this year, they, for the very first time in 30 years, have said that they have unequivocal evidence of attributable impacts of climate change because of the fact that we have raised global temperature above one degree by our emissions of greenhouse gases. So there's a human footprint or fingerprint on impacts of climate change. They're not caused by climate change, but they are made more intense and worse by climate change. And that's what causes the damage in our climate change lexicon. We call it loss and damage from climate change. Incidentally, even the term loss and damage is a euphemism we have to use because we're not allowed to use what it really means, which is liability and compensation. Yes. Those are taboo words, by the way. Because those are, your, those your, are legal your terms. Your governments don't allow us. To, yeah. And your governments don't allow us to use them. So, so what is the plan then to deal with this, whether you call it loss and damage or, or compensation and liability? We have foregone the right to call it liability and compensation, as I said. But what we are asking for is solidarity. I'll give you the two examples that happened just within the last couple of months. We had floods in Germany that killed more than 200 Germans. It cost tens of billions of euros of damage. Uh, Hurricane Ida that hit the United States hit the coast of Louisiana and then traveled all the way up to New Jersey, flooded the subways in New York, killed more than 50 people in New Jersey. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel visited the flood hit areas. President Joe Biden visited the flood hit areas in New Jersey. They both admitted this was human-induced climate change, attributable to human-induced climate change. And then both of them forked out billions of euros and dollars to compensate their own citizens from that damage. Now, we have no problem with that. It's a good thing for them to have done. But, you know, citizens in Bangladesh, in Malawi, in Kenya, in Tuvalu are also being damaged by climate change and suffering loss and damage. Do they not have one dollar or one euro to give to those people at all? In the negotiations, they're saying no, zero. We're not going to give you a dime. Not a cent. Not a cent. What's your reaction to that position? Makes my blood boil that they can get away with that. You know, they're polluters. They're causing harm and they're saying, you. It's hard to miss how much bitterness there is in your voice. I'm wondering how you keep going with this in spite of that. Well, I, I tell you, I've given up on the leaders. You know, I'm in Glasgow for the 26th COP, but I don't have faith in the leaders doing the right thing. But there's going to be a hell of a lot more going on in Glasgow than just inside the blue zone of the U.N., We will be here in Glasgow, many, many thousands of people doing things, meeting each other, talking to each other. And that really is where the hope lies, and particularly the younger generation. So Greta's coming as well. We'll we'll join her in her march and show the world that things can be done. Young people can make them happen. Old leaders, I I have no faith in. Salim Al-Haq, thank you so much. Thank you.
So often, when people talk about tackling climate change, they're talking about cutting emissions. But today, we're talking money. Months ago, Canada and Germany took on the challenge of hunting down the millions that were missing from the $100 billion pledge. And they forecast the pledge will be met by 2023. Canada, for its part, has doubled its own contribution to $5.3 billion over five years. But Canada still spends a lot more subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. Eddie Perez is the International Climate Diplomacy Manager at Climate Action Network. Hello. Hello. Thank you for the invitation. When you look at the pledge from Canada, $5.3 billion over five years, what jumps out at you? Well, the doubling was a very welcome response because it did help actually send a message that climate finance was a priority for the Canadian government as a foreign policy issue that could help Canada be seen as a partner to the global fight against climate change. But I think we need to remind ourselves that Canada's pledge is really far from our capacity to finance global climate action. When we calculate how much Canada would be able to do, you know, based on our gross national income, we should have been, you know, at some point, something like 4% of the 100 billion, which is about $4 billion a year. If we start to calculate how much funding should come from Canada based on some kind of effort sharing between rich contributor nations, the 23 countries that give Uh, funding for climate finance, Canada's portion is about 4% of that $100 billion. Uh, In contrast, the U.S. portion is about 40%. None of these two countries are actually providing their, their fair share, but there are countries who are. Germany is one of them. They are really one of the highest contributors to climate finance resources. So Canada's pledge is welcome, but it does not represent our fair contribution to the hundred billion. You, you know, you, you've been using that word "fair" and "fairness" in your answer. Can you explain the phrase "climate finance," what it is, and why it is supposed to be rooted in fairness? Climate finance is not a gift. It's not based on good faith or in generosity. Some countries have a higher responsibility than others, and that is where the word "fair" comes. You know, how fair should Canada's contribution to the global climate crisis should be? And that is where we start applying this word to the climate finance issue. How, how does the money that Canada has pledged compare to the amount of money the government puts into fossil fuel production, either through, through subsidies or in other ways? I think I would say two things about that. When, when we look at the amount of money that Canada is channeling to the expansion of the fossil fuel industry annually, we're talking about something like $12 billion annually. And these funds are actually being channeled through a Canadian crown corporation called Expert Development Canada. Expert Development Canada is also a crown corporation that is providing climate finance at the international level. And it is really ironic that Canada uses the same crown corporation to finance climate investments internationally, while at the same time, it is the one that is providing disproportionate billions of dollars to uh, fossil fuels and the industry globally. And so when you compare the contribution of Canada to international public finance for fossil fuels and international public finance for climate action, the difference is astonishing. 
And, you know, it really shows is not only in Canada, but, you know, globally that uh, these rich nations still don't have the priority, the priorities in the right place and, you know, continue to say one thing from one side and funding the problem on the other side. Okay, given that, then how, how much credibility does Canada have at these negotiations? This is going to be an issue that uh, will test the cooperation of the COP26 outcome, and Canada has been invited to step up and to take a leadership role. But the international community is going to look at Canada uh, on two things. The first one is how willing they're able to get away from funding the problem at the international level and how much they're able to step up when it comes to channeling more climate finance and also climate finance where the needs are uh, you know, much more important, in particular for adaptation. So I, I would say that the fact that Canada increase its, its climate finance is a good thing. It's a good thing that helps Canada build credibility within the COP, but it's not enough. And if Canada wants to be seen as a credible partner for the Global South, they also need to start announcing that they're going to phase out international public finance for fossil fuels. Eddie Perez, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Now, Ottawa has cut eight out of nine tax breaks for the fossil fuel sector, and it's also undergoing a peer review with Argentina, but that work isn't yet complete. So Canada and others are gathering around the negotiating table in Glasgow, including so-called small island nations. Those nations actually forced industrialized countries to include the 1.5 degree warming limit in the Paris Agreement. 1.5 to stay alive was their call. Belize Ambassador Janine Felsen is the lead negotiator on finance for the Alliance of Small Island States. She was there in Paris, and she's now in Glasgow to push wealthy countries to step up their support for islands already facing the impact of climate change. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me, what are your priorities for the negotiations in Glasgow? We're going into Glasgow with the expectation that countries, especially the major economies of the Group of 20, that they will ramp up their ambition. They will set out a clear plan of making sure their nationally determined contributions or their climate plans are going to be consistent with 1.5 degrees. That includes near-term targets in 2030 and as well the net zero commitments by 2050. And in addition to that, of course, we are going to demand that the developed countries who in 2009 committed to delivering $100 billion per annum by 2020 to support climate action in developing countries, we're going to demand that they deliver on that goal. Only around 2% of the money developed countries are giving now goes to small island states. I'm wondering what the barriers are to getting more of that money. 
currently, we have a very fragmented climate finance landscape, very fragmented, multiple funds with different criteria. And because we're small, we have limited resources, there are high transaction costs in engaging with all of these different funds to put forward projects, which are oftentimes rather small in scale comparative to other developing countries. The Alliance of Small Island States has also zeroed in on fossil fuel subsidies. What, what do you want to see happen on that front? So the Small Island Developing States have called for fossil fuel subsidies to end by 2023. And this is directed to the group of 20 countries. Let's put it this way. What is the point of putting trillions of dollars into an industry or sectors that are high polluting and putting you know, 100 billion, if we reach that, towards climate finance in countries. What's the point? At that stage, we've completely diluted the impact that the climate finance would otherwise have had. So we need to directly address the issues of fossil fuel subsidies and investment in fossil fuels. Now, Canada's position on this, I'm not sure that, that you know, it has been that it needs to continue um, investing in and having a fossil fuel industry to help pay for the transition to clean energy and clean technologies. And I'm wondering what you think of that. So that that is, of course, something that many countries, not just Canada, have uh, put forward, that there is going to be a need for transition. And I wish we could have had our own transition in small island developing states where we would have had the time and the money to address the impacts of climate change. But we simply do not have time. Yes, there is going to be a transition, but that transition can't be delayed. We can't kick the can down the road any further. Island nations can offer the world some ideas on how to do things like maintain biodiversity or deal with a world that's heating up. I'm wondering what role conservation plays in negotiation? So island countries have been uh, pioneering many different aspects of nature-based solutions. Belize, for instance, has been focused on protecting its forests. And now in our most recent climate plan, we're looking at our uh, mangroves and our coral reef. Um, We've also been using the concept of debt for climate swap. But bringing that all together, we're using what we have, our natural assets, what has now been shown or proven to be able to serve a solution to climate. Um, and we're using that to bring forward ambitious action and show how we can, in fact, incorporate something that's critical to all of us, nature, um, as part of the solution for climate change. One and a half degrees is now a number that a lot of people are familiar with, but what they may not know is how it came to be part of the climate change lexicon. But I wonder if you can pull back the curtain for us. How did island nations ensure it was actually included in the Paris Agreement? It was a long process. It started off even as far back as 2007 when we started looking at the science and what the thresholds could be for small island developing states and some of our critical ecosystems, including our coral reefs. Then by 2009, we had a major campaign to get 1.5 within the consideration of the Copenhagen conference. Copenhagen did not go the way everyone had anticipated. We did not end up with a climate deal. We did end up with a accord that was finally endorsed in 2010. And 1.5 wasn't anchored in there, but it was contemplated. And then by 2015, 
we had ramped up enough diplomatic support for 1.5 to stay alive. And then there were multiple heads who came together, and one, of course, being Tony de Broom from the Republic of Marshall Islands, who spearheaded and pushed very hard to get developed countries to come together on 1.5. So it's been a long process, and it's, it's include persistence, persistence and solidarity. And eventually we ended up with 1.5 being a part of the Paris objectives in the Paris Agreement. And yet now countries aren't on track to meet the commitment to hold temperature rise to one and a half degrees. It is really worrisome. That is why many have called COP26 the last best chance to accelerate action towards 1.5. I would like to underscore that COP26 is not an end point. It is a stop in the road, an important one. But from there, we need to ensure that we continue to put pressure, we continue to build momentum towards 1.5. So let's think of COP26, yes, as an important political moment, but let's not think of it as the end point. Ambassador, good luck in all of the negotiations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for giving us a voice. listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM and CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Laura Lynch and we do love hearing from you. So whether you're feeling the impact of climate change in your community or you're doing something to combat it, let us know about it. Earth at cbc.ca is our email address. And if you don't mind us giving you a call back, include your phone number. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. Marching forward in the pouring rain, thousands of people press their point. 
It's an urgent message from the streets of Glasgow to the decision-makers staying dry inside at the climate talks. And at the front of the line, Indigenous people from Brazil, Peru, the United States and Canada carrying placards demanding their land back, demanding Indigenous rights and climate justice. And yet they aren't at the bargaining table. This half hour we hear how Indigenous peoples are taking action on climate and why decolonization is essential to keeping 1.5 alive. I'm Laura Lynch and you're listening to an encore edition of What on Earth from Glasgow. A meeting breaks up. People mill about, not yet ready to leave each other's company. It's a gathering of Indigenous people, far away from the site of the power brokers at the climate negotiations. Some wear colourful, traditional dress, others wear what's needed to guard against the Glasgow chill. They're here to plot strategy, to promote solidarity, and to learn from each other. One man walks outside with me down a lane that is not always quiet. My name is Edson, Edson Krenak. I'm from Krenak people in Brazil, Vanuiri clan. And I'm an indigenous activist, a writer, and uh, also a teacher. His homeland, Brazil, is thousands of kilometers away from this conference. But Krenak wants to tell me why he's come here, why he thinks coming to the UN climate meeting is crucial to the fight for indigenous rights around the world. Is affecting primarily indigenous peoples because indigenous peoples depend uh, entirely on the, the nature, is where they live, where is their home. They have their food, their medicine, and the water. And uh, speaking of water, for example, is the first time in our history for centuries that in a country so rich of rivers and water, we are having water problems in our communities. Regions are, are, are close to Amazon forest, to the rainforest, we don't find our medicine plants anymore. Our herbs are disappearing completely without we in front of our sight, our eyes, because there's no rain enough anymore. There's no animals, plants, uh, uh, birds, uh, bees. They are not visiting us anymore. We cannot interact with them anymore because of the impact of climate change. When you say problems with the water, what what exactly do you mean? Lack of water, no drinking water? Lack of water, no drink water, exactly. Uh, drought, a lack of a rain uh, in areas that we used to have like every year, year, the seasonal rain. Sometimes we have now five years without one drop of water. We know that the, the source of this, uh, what is causing it, is many places in the world, but especially in our own country. Because for decades, our government, the Brazilian state, they don't demarcate our Lands, they don't protect our lands and with that without uh, protection of uh, indigenous peoples don't, without protection of our lands also the environment the nature the biome has no protection because we are the the last defenders of the the mother earth the the, the group that you are with cultural survival it is focused on land rights and self-determination how is recognizing indigenous rights a climate change solution 
Uh, well, I think the, the best way to answer this question is to answer who are the indigenous peoples. We are the, not only defenders of the, the environment, of the forests, the rivers, the animals, the multi-species. We are part of them. And we want now to make all humans to believe that we are part of this planet. The first step to decolonize state policies, our society policies, is to invite indigenous peoples to be part of the, the policy-making mechanisms and, and uh, uh, actions. We are being excluded from many conversations. The, the state is not inviting indigenous peoples to discuss the best policies. We don't have, a, as they say, a planet B. Indigenous peoples, they come to COP to, not with just a message to the state, because we know states are hard to listen to our voice, but we have a, a message to the entire society. We don't want to be alone, uh, uh, work and defend the planet, but we want allies, we want the media, we want other organizations, civil society to join us to defend uh, the environment. And the, the goal is to survive is to survive this uh, colonization, new colonization that is still going on. It, that is the cause of all this climate catastrophe that we are facing right now. But we are confident. Indigenous peoples, we have survived 500 years of colonization. It was a massive, powerful colonization. They tried to, with using a lot of technology to exterminate us. But we, uh, with our simple ways of life, we survived. We are here fighting uh, because we believe that on our side is nature, on our side is the Mother Earth. So my last question is, we are going to be speaking to a Canadian Indigenous leader who had been to a previous COP and is not coming because he just doesn't think it's worth the time to come here. I'm wondering what you think of that. Mm -hmm. I, I respect his decision, I, I respect that. When I hear my, also my, my relative from Peru saying that his family died defending the forest where they live, he has no reason to come here. Why I go there? We are paying with our own lives. But their message also was very strong in my heart. They say, we will die for our forest. We will die for this planet that is, is a home for all humans. And uh, I would like to actually to send a message to this uh, relative. Reconsider. We need you here. Maybe not to talk to the government. Maybe not to change the state or to change the world in a, a global scale. But please come uh, be with us. Join us. Share your, your needs. Share your vi visions, your hopes. Uh, also your struggles. And this is uh, important. I tell this uh, brother to please do not give up, we need you. And uh, to all indigenous people that are listening to, to this uh, uh, podcast, to this uh, show, we is the first time in our history that indigenous peoples in their, and their ancestors can gather together in a global scale. It's a historical. We are doing something that every day we feel like it goes pumps in our arms because we feel that the energy, the power that we are bringing into those discussions is really, is really great. And we, we believe that uh, Mother Earth will be a little bit happier or less sad after this, this COP. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Thanks to you. Thanks for this opportunity.
Eklanate, Dene Sotaneta, Ariels Ekwe Huche, Durange Betsi and Nihesli. My name is Ariels Ekwe Durange, and I'm a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation and the Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action. We meet Ariel Durange at the Indigenous People's Pavilion, a modest two room kiosk, harder in space they had to negotiate for. This isn't her first time at one of these conferences. She's been involved with UN Climate Talks for more than a decade now. And I begin by asking her if she thinks Indigenous voices are actually being heard. I think that there is an improvement in the visibility of Indigenous peoples, Indigenous voices, um, and Indigenous issues. But we're still not actually seeing substantive changes to the mechanisms within the UNFCCC processes. And why do you think that is? These systems are fundamentally created for colonial systems. They weren't created for us or for us to succeed within them. And then secondarily, the value systems that drive the UNFCCC process is fundamentally divergent from the Indigenous value systems that drive our own communities. Everything from the decision-making processes to what they hold valuable in the discussions and the negotiations. When you say decision-making processes, I would think you're talking about consensus So, you know, there will be those that say that the UN is a consensus-based organization, but those at the table that are coming to consensus are colonial leaders that in many cases don't have the consensus of their constituencies and are responsible for the marginalization, sometimes the violent oppression and murder of their indigenous populations. So how are we supposed to allow those leaders to negotiate on our behalf? Well, then given all of that... Why bother coming here? Without interventions made by Indigenous groups and civil society, we would have already negotiated terms of an agreement that are doing very little to actually reduce emissions, protect human rights, but instead we would be looking at massive trade agreements. The first agreement for, for climate change was done in Kyoto, and they developed the Clean Development Mechanism, where they were looking at ways to trade emissions and carbon offsets. How do we determine what the global contributions are going to be? Since that time, it's been perverted into a system that is completely fixated on the economy. They have the situation very backwards and without the interventions of um, human rights advocates and indigenous rights advocates, we would still be in a state where that's where the conversations would be. We would not be talking about capping oil and gas production. We would not be talking about ending deforestation. Uh, Instead, we would be looking at ways to cook the books by looking for carbon market mechanisms that allow countries to offset emissions. They're talking about that here again. Absolutely. What are your concerns about that? So, you know, Article 6 is the last article of the Paris Agreement to be negotiated and agreed upon, creating an international mechanism for carbon trading. This is a huge concern for the rights of Indigenous peoples, not just in Canada, but internationally. This looks at how we now can talk about sacrifice zones in the north and the so-called protection of areas in the global south, let's say the rainforest. But while that sounds like a good idea, the, the communities in the rainforest that have been sold this carbon market mechanism where conservation, they're going to save their lands and territories, corporations are buying assets, that's what they're calling them, in the rainforests, in these beautiful biodiverse regions so that they can offset their operations, so they can get to so-called net zero. That's not net zero. We need real zero. 
there is the inability of some in the global south to travel to Glasgow because of the pandemic Absolutely. this time around. And that's brought the question of whose voice gets heard here to yep. the forefront. I'm wondering how you reconcile being here when so many others can't. You know, my organization called for the postponement or cancelling of this COP because of that. And then we also recognize that if we can make it here, we have to speak even louder. We're not here just to talk about Canada. We're here to talk about the fact that there's a global Indigenous movement that is saying that we can't afford to continue to debate the merits of how to save the economy. We need to be advancing real solutions that include real reduction in emissions, but also the safeguards for human and Indigenous rights. And we also need to empower Indigenous peoples to have a seat at the table so that we can bring forward our knowledge to ensure that we're moving in the right direction. How long do you have to wait to get a seat at the table? Well, you know, the Local Communities Indigenous Peoples Platform is that step in the right direction that normally science, you know, in policy and government, we talk about science being the, the best way to inform policy. And what the challenge has been is we're saying Indigenous knowledge needs to be included on par with scientific information and that we need to utilize our knowledges to inform climate policy at the international level. And that trickles down to how is that going to happen at the state level? And this is an important lever for us. So the people within the local communities Indigenous Peoples Platform now have the ears of the UN Secretariat, but also they get to sit in rooms and negotiate these terms with state leaders. This has given us sort of one measure closer to having recognition as critical agents to driving climate solutions. As an Indigenous person and as a person working in a a capacity here where you feel you're representing other Indigenous people who can't be here, how will you measure the success of this? I think we'll measure the success in this is if we see those safeguard languages included in the negotiations for Article 6, for loss and damages, uh, you know, for gender and, and women's rights. We're going to be seeing the continuation of advocating for Indigenous rights languages throughout the negotiations. Um, and then secondarily, how do we move to having more recognition in decision-making powers probably within Canada first, because that's where I can advocate for. But then if we set those precedences, we can advocate for developing nations and we have this trickle-down effect. Ariel Duranje, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's pretty easy to find time and space to speak with Ariel Durange and Edson Kernak, but many other Indigenous people and leaders didn't make the trip. Some could not. Others don't think it's worth the time. My name is Dana Tija Tram, and I am the chief of the Vantukwajin First Nation. He's in Old Crow, Yukon. Chief Tija Tram, hello. Hi there, thank you for having me. Why did you make the decision to stay at home versus coming to Glasgow? Well, I went to COP25 in Madrid, Spain, and that was a jarring experience. Um, What I found at COP25 was a tiny little pavilion uh, far away from all of the other nations and countries who did not visit the Indigenous Pavilion. 
what really did it for me was the day that I'd seen human rights uh, really get uh, uh, undermined at the negotiation tables in the actualization of the Paris Accord. And I saw this leverage being taken away from Indigenous peoples and everyone running around in suits with coffee cups and a croissant in their laptops. And it broke my heart. But I find the powerful discussions that should be happening at the COP tables right in my community. That's where the strength is. And I've realized that over COP, where I could be educating others, my education, my power, my direction comes from a community 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle that is having the level of integrity of discussions that really should be had at the international tables. Now we heard from someone named Edson Cranach. He's from the Vanriwi clan in Brazil and he came to Glasgow. He's thinking it's very important to be here. I asked him about your view of things and well, he called you his brother and said he respects your decision. He also wanted you to reconsider because, and these are his exact words, he wants you to share your visions, your hopes, and also your struggles with the people here. And I'm wondering what you make of his plea. I, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, it is important. But at the same time, I don't rely on COP for those conversations. And, and I want to be respectful in this as well. Our form of international communications, our form of Indigenous conversation is by affecting the regional uh, frameworks of policies. And something my brother to the south would would recognize is that my people require leadership in our community and within our region. And although I look forward to conversations with all of our brothers and sisters, I think at this time um, uh, in history, leadership is required over politics and action is speaking louder than words. You are not here in person, but you are sharing virtually your knowledge and insights about your community's clean energy project. I wonder if you could tell us about what's happening in Old Crow with solar energy. We have an incredible amount of endeavors that have been realized after decades of work, actually. Um, we've recently completed a 2,100 bifacial uh, solar array panel. And this is on a fixed system of panels facing east and west. And they are delivered through a microgrid system with a battery that can uh, supply our community of 250 people with energy for an hour. And what this is set up for is to displace the diesel generated electricity. Diesel is literally flown to the community of Old Crow and burned since the late 60s we've now turned them off for the first time in about 50 years. So our solar array project is able to completely shut the diesel generators off, which we're able to accomplish from early March to late September, satisfying 24% of the community's energy needs, likened to displacing uh, 600 transatlantic flights, it's like taking 140 vehicles off the road. Um, but the real key here is, is we have to understand and we have to look at money like it's energy as well. And my community was exporting our fiscal energies to shareholders for a utility. 
Whereas now we are selling the shareholders savings on operations and maintenance and transportation of diesel. So we have now unlocked $410,000 a year for the community, which we are using to invigorate even more uh, exponential changes through biomass projects and, and wind energy. And we've been able to accomplish this with a singular project, uh, which is changing the community. I, I'm wondering what it was like that first day when I know generators make a lot of noise. What was it like for you that first day when they were shut off? I remember going outside and just listening as uh, the sun uh, shone with its strength in the community. And I can tell you that what really hit me in the heart and mind was as I was listening to the silence, I heard a raven caw from the other side of the village and it rang through. Uh, it it blew me away but one of my favorite stories about it is our local community member who works at the generators is, is a real kind of bush man you know a real uh, stoic man's man and a community member told me they were driving by the generators and he came running out waving his arms which is completely not like him and they were concerned so they pulled over and he came up to them with a smile and he said listen and there was nothing and he said the generators are shut off and you know for a real kind of stoic bushman to you know act like a, a five-year-old at christmas i think says a lot i can hear the smile on your face as you're recounting that story i'm wondering if you can pull back from that project though chief and tell us what is the evidence of climate change that you see around you in old crow right now this is a really important question and I just really want to say that, you know, I have seen the climate change issue become uh, this objective truth of 6,000 scientists from around the, the world, the greatest interdisciplinary cohesion in scientific history. And many of these instances through our oral history, I mean, our elders often talk about their elders. And one of the most common things I'm hearing from our elders today is I have never seen this before. And it gets to the kind of spooky things where, for instance, we saw black or uh, we saw the geese come before the black ducks come. And we have never seen that before. Black ducks always uh, come first. That has changed. The number of birds have dropped. Even the number of insects have dropped. Lakes uh, are draining and they're starting to drain at a higher frequency. Uh, we're seeing uh, huge bluffs fall, occluding river systems and actually almost choking them right off. Even in the Yukon, just a couple of years ago, we had an entire river that reversed. An entire river because of glacial melt. Uh, a glacier gave way and, and the whole river reversed its direction. Any direction and anything you begin to try to quantify, we are seeing changes, increases in fires, um, changes in the burning rates of shrubs and foliages. Um, the caribou population migrations are becoming very strange, unpredictable. And a big one that uh, I don't hear a lot of people talking about is our salmon populations are dropping like a rock off of a cliff. Um, all of these extremely concerning. That is a very long list, and I'm wondering, you've got the solar project underway, but it sounds like you need a lot more. What are you, else are you planning to do for the community? One of the main things is, um, and what I, if I may, 
Now, this may catch people off guard, but I believe now, after all of my time and, and years dedicated to this, I believe the real solution to climate change is community. This needs to be happening in Vancouver, in Toronto, in New York. Communities need to take their power back and really decide amongst themselves, opposed to leaving it up to international negotiators at COP or the next election or even CEOs. Our next steps are about um, community and making the country of Canada our community. We have a commitment from the federal government to get all rural communities off diesel generation by 2030. I passed the same resolution at the Assembly of First Nations. So now we have mandates, but we need to go farther. Um, I'm going to be calling for pan-Arctic uh, collaboration for uh, the provinces and territories, as well as the First Nation communities. And this is one of the fundamental principles of nature, as it shows us that uh, nature itself banks on diversity and rewards cooperation. We need to, as a community, invite uh, industry. Uh, we need to invite uh, science, um, invite a lot of our traditional, traditional aspects um, and the successes are, are going to come together. And I think that's a large part of my now philosophy. So, I, I mean, you're doing so much in your community to tackle climate crisis. I'm wondering how much does it even matter what happens here in Glasgow in the next few days? I appreciate that. And, and I'm trying to be as respectful as possible with my comments because, don't get me wrong, Glasgow is important. But... I'm not banking on Glasgow for the Hail Mary that's going to shift the Titanic in time that, you know, we just graze the iceberg instead of hitting it head on. Again, the biggest teachings from my people is community. We uplift one another, we strengthen one another through conversations and we find the solutions. That's how we're able to address um, the, the abyss of climate change this is not a time for, for weakness. I mean, we should go through that emotion and recognize it, but we have to come from a place of strength. We have to find that in ourselves. We have to find it in our communities and, and grow that. And that comes from the people. Chief Dana Tijatram, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate this opportunity, Laura, and I hope that my words have rung true for some of the listeners out there. That's it for us this week. The interviews you heard originally aired during COP26 in November, and now we look ahead to COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And we'd love to hear from you. How much faith do you have in these big international climate summits? Perhaps you've attended one and you've got some insight to share with us. You can email us, earth at cbc.ca, or follow us on Twitter at cbcwhatonearth, or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. DMs are open. The What on Earth team includes associate producer Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.